Pound the Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. That's right. We brought you the best sports media app. Now we're bringing you the best sports book and casino. Now live in Ontario. The Score Bet offers a safe and secure mobile sports book experience with both pregame and in-play markets. But best of all, it's integrated into the Score and our content to give you the easiest and most seamless sports betting experience. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Ontario only. Must be 19 years of age or older to participate. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call Connects Ontario at 1-866-531-2600. Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I am joined, as always, by fellow co-host Joel Wolfon. What's up, Cash? Happy belated birthday. How you doing? I'm doing well, man. Appreciate you. I did have a happy birthday because I'm not a Phoenix Suns fan. You are a Maple Leafs fan, though, so... You, you know. have to go there. You <laughs> have to go there. This is a basketball podcast. No one wants to hear about the torturous life that is being a Toronto Maple Leafs fan. Yeah, I apologize. I just... I, I hope that didn't put a damper on uh, on things too much for you. Uh, no, I mean, I was the best man in a wedding on Saturday night, so... I unfortunately, well, I guess fortunately, could not watch the latest Leafs first round demise. Uh, I was already shook enough when they lost game six in overtime on the Thursday night because I was at the, you know, the future groom's house that night. We had done the rehearsal and everyone was like just awkwardly depressed when the Leafs lost game six in overtime because we all knew what that meant, that game seven was now going to be on (laughs) the wedding day. So... Bad vibes all around there, but the wedding was obviously great. Good vibes all around there. Life is bigger than sports, even though sometimes it doesn't feel like it when you're as sports-obsessed and as big of a fan as we are of of sports and connected to teams as we are. But uh, obviously, first-world problems. And back on the saddle, there's always next year or some bullshit like that. And we're here to talk about the NBA and not cry about um, the local hockey team. I think the way this podcast is going to start off will probably be adding to the tears of Suns fans, unfortunately. So apologies out there if you are a Phoenix Suns fans, Wolfon. Uh, do you have anything to say about what we witnessed? What I believe was, I mean, it's up there as like the most shocking, outrageous results. Not not just that the Suns lost or didn't win the championship, or like were eliminated, the way they lost. Like getting, you know, what a, lost by 33, they were down 80 to 40 at one point in the third quarter like the the way they lost to me was one of the most shocking results I can remember in my life of watching the NBA yeah I mean the game was over by halftime they're down by 30 at halftime they had 27 points at halftime Luca had as many points as the Phoenix Suns had at halftime this is one of the best offensive teams in the league and they were outrageously good offensively in this series like the first two games of this series they were carving Dallas up and so yeah I would say I'm still feeling almost shell-shocked by the way that went down and the way that a team that we have seen throughout the last two years really just execute at the highest level completely capitulate at both ends of the floor really and and I mean on Defense, honestly, I thought for the most part, until kind of that avalanche came at the end of the second quarter, 
I actually thought they were defending really well in that game. I mean, Luca was hitting some outrageous step back threes to which you can only tip your cap and say too good. Um, you know, there's nothing you can do about that, but there is something you can do about scoring 27 points and a half. I mean, it was, um, it was top down disaster. Like nobody played well. And I think at the center of it all is Chris Paul, obviously, who, if you're looking at this holistically and, you know, what does this mean for the Suns big picture? What does it mean for them moving forward? I mean, we can get to the eight and stuff too, which is just seemed like it all like happened really quickly. Yeah. You know, this fracture with the organization that, yeah. I mean, maybe it was just something that was there that was kept under wraps, but uh, I, I certainly wasn't expecting that to be this kind of like major talking point coming out of this series. But, um, but you know, Chris Paul, there's a little more urgency there, I think, because Chris Paul is at the center of so much of what Phoenix does. He's been such an integral part, you know, not that Aiden hasn't, but certainly not to the same extent, right? You have this Hall of Famer who has taken your franchise to, to these unexpected heights in the last two years who was still playing at an all NBA level until like a few days ago. And it's like, we were joking about this off air about, you know, did Chris Paul turn 37 and all of a sudden, you know, the clock struck midnight and he turned into a pumpkin, but like, that's actually what happened. And I think, you know, that was the, maybe the single most shocking thing about all of this is that all of a sudden, uh, he, he just sort of lost the ability to play. And I think, you know, the Mavs defense did have a lot to do with that. We should give them credit. Um, and, and, you know, I think in our haste maybe to, like, clown the Jazz in the first round, we maybe didn't give quite enough credit, even though I think we have, we have like, attributed a lot of Dallas's success this season to its defense, and I think we have given them ample credit for that. But, like, they they were unbelievable in that first-round series. After, you know, getting carved up in the first two games of this series, they really tightened things up, made some key adjustments they started picking picking up chris paul like full court hounding him you know with a variety of defenders from bullock to finney smith to frank nitalakina like really bothered him but the, the way they brought help to devin booker too i thought was like really interesting and a bit unique where it kind of came from the back line on some of those screen and rolls i, I yeah. just thought they, they got really creative with Maybe not so much with Paul, as you were saying. It was more of just kind of picking him up half court but or full court. But the way they defended Booker, I thought they got creative. And uh, they completely shut them down, man. And it was shocking. I, I think that uh, Devin Booker in his pickup runs this summer should be doing nothing but asking to be double teamed. Yeah. Every yeah. single time. Like that's, yeah. And it's funny because I actually think he had gotten a lot better at dealing with double teams. And the Suns... Typically, I've said this before, I think they've been really good at making teams pay for putting two on the ball. But in the latter stage of the of this series, that was not the case at all. And part of that was on Booker, who I don't think made very good decisions or passes for that matter. Like even when he was making the quote unquote right pass, the passes just often didn't have enough on them or they were wayward. They got picked off like he turned the ball over a ton. He didn't deal with the pressure well at all. And you know, we can we can couch this in, uh, you know, some some kind of caveat where Booker was coming off of the hamstring injury. Chris Paul, according to uh, was it Mark Spears, I think, who reported it, that that he had a calf injury. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, it tracks based on what we saw from him in the last few games. So 
maybe they just weren't operating at 100%. And obviously when you're two, you know, offensive engines, your your co-lead ball handlers basically are dealing with injuries, like maybe it's expected that your offense is going to fall apart. But to the extent that it did, I mean, it's still it's still surprising to me. So also in the first round series, when we talked um, about Devin Booker getting hurt, one of the things we talked about is that for as good as the Suns were and as good as their offense was, after Paul and Booker, like the only guy in the rotation that could really create for himself was campaign. And obviously that's not the player that you want to have to rely on for self-creation as like a secondary creator. Yeah. And I think that. Well, really the Suns didn't want to rely on him. They, they ex- excised him yeah, from the Sham rotation. Shamit, uh, deservedly so, took his minutes in the second round series. But I think it came back to bite them in the end, right? Like not having that extra creation because in this series, Neither one of those guys was out, but whether because of that calf injury or just age or whatever, Paul was not effective, and therefore they did kind of just have one creator. And you know, as mentioned, with the way the Mavs were defending him and some of the decisions Booker was making, they took that one creator pretty much out of the game and out of the series down the stretch of it. And it's like, okay, Mikael Bridges had a phenomenal season, like really good player and very important to what they do, but has not really developed enough yet as like an ind- he he's not an individual creator he's a really really good 3 and D player the majority if not all of his offense comes from you know guys putting him in positions to get a shot up quickly he's not creating much for himself Aiton again uh, has we can talk about Aiton but like he can be a beast inside but same thing you're feeding him in the post you're like he's not creating much for himself or even dribbling into his own post it's like there's there's just not a lot there when it comes to finding their way to good looks if the ball is not starting in Devin Booker or Chris Paul's hands. And if you take one of those guys out of the equation, they're in trouble. If you take one of those guys out of the equation and the other one's taking himself out of the equation, they're cooked, which they were. Yeah, but I mean, honestly, how many teams in the league have more than two super reliable yeah, that's fair. creators? Like, not that many. And obviously, it's, it's been working for the Suns for yeah. a while. Uh, you You don't expect both right. of your of your you know co-primary ball handlers to just like fall apart at the same time right like both of your likely all nba guards yeah and then you know kind of simultaneously bridges I, you know i agree with what you said he's not like really creating his own offense but he is really good at attacking like a, a scrambled defense yes right? like the ball swings to the second side defense is in rotation he can really attack off the catch and that also fell by the wayside in in the last couple of games of this series. Like when when the Suns would be able to sort of beat those traps and get the ball swinging over over to the weak side, whether it was Bridges, whether it was Crowder, neither of those guys were really able to make anything happen in terms of just like knocking down catch and shoots or attacking closeouts and getting to the rim. Like they they weren't able to do anything. So the whole machine kind of broke down for Phoenix in a way that again was just really. I, I hesitate to say alarming because it's like, you know, where we were reacting to two games here, basically, as opposed to this massive sample that we have of Phoenix being a really good regular season and playoff team. But I, I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, the other thing that we didn't mention in, in terms of the Chris Paul stuff that may have or probably did affect him at the offensive end was just the extent to which Dallas was attacking him on defense like Luca just dragging him into screening action over and over and over again. I mean, Brunson taking him into the post, like they were, they were making a point of attacking him, whether because they thought he was the weakest link defensively or just because they thought that was a great way to wear him out. 
either way that really worked. And so now you have this undersized point guard who is 37, who like we've kind of been waiting for the other shoe to drop for a long time. And maybe it has and maybe it hasn't. I mean, again, he was playing some of the best basketball we've seen him play just a few days earlier, right? That game two against yeah. Dallas when when he cooked Luka. Over and over and over again. That, that game six against the Pelicans, where he yeah. literally did he miss a field goal in that game? Did, he had he was like thirteen perfect, for thirteen. What we were talking about his perfect game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he, look, man, that game two, which was the last game before he turned thirty-seven, is very much right now looking like it might have been his swan song. I mean, I'm I'm hopeful that it's not, and like you know, maybe it was just this injury that was bugging him, and he'll be back next year and look like the Chris Paul we know. Um, but if if he's not, like, if he really has just suddenly, like, fallen off a cliff like the, the moment he turned 37, which feels unlikely to me. Uh, well, okay, let's leave that aside because I don't think that's what's happened. But I think it's fair to say maybe at this point, because it's not a new thing. Right. Chris Paul has, you know, he's always seemingly had, like, some sort of issue in the postseason. And maybe that's the reality of being a, an undersized guard. Yep. In, in this league is like you don't necessarily make it through a full regular season unscathed. Like you're not fully healthy in the playoffs. And, you know, despite the vegan diet or whatever other measures he has taken to elongate his prime, he's a 37 year old who, you know, this situation is probably not going to improve. You know, you wouldn't expect him to go into next postseason with, without the wear and tear on his body or some injury or other. So I guess my feeling is if if we're worried about Chris Paul, then I feel like we should probably be worried about the Suns. 100%. You know, not in the sense that they're going to be bad or like immediately revert to being the Suns of the 2010s, but in terms of their championship equity, I guess, for the next couple of years. Anytime like that play, Chris Paul came out and was like, I'm not retiring. And so I feel like anytime your most important player has to come out and clarify pretty much I don't actually, I didn't watch the press conference, so I don't know if it was like, he was not asked. He was not asked specifically. So so it was an unsolicited like statement that he wasn't going to retire, which feels like a bit of a a red flag, you know? Um, But he's on the books for 28 million guaranteed next year. I think he's got a $16 million partial guarantee for the following season. And then he's fully non-guaranteed in 2024, 25. So I, you know, he's going to be around obviously next year, probably the year after that. um, And to me, he still represents their championship window. So yeah. it's definitely worrisome that we saw this happen to him uh, at this stage of the postseason. Man, I think we just witnessed their championship window close. And I'm not, I'm really not trying to be an alarmist, but like to, to your point, I don't, I don't know how you watch what we just watched. And with Chris Paul, especially at his age, with his history of his body wearing down at this point in the year and think that, at 38 or 39, it's finally going to happen. You know, I'm not, I, 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 it would be great if it did, but I just, at what point do you stop expecting that to happen when it basically never has, right? At 38 or 39, now it's going to happen. In terms of the result itself, man, like, I don't know how you say anything, not just for Chris Paul, but for the Suns as a team, other than that was like embarrassing, disgraceful, shameful blowouts happen man we know that and over the course of the regular season you're gonna have nights where whatever travel shots aren't full you just you get your ass kicked it happens and you shouldn't overreact to it and even within the course of a playoff series we know they happen 
in this game, like in this series, the the Suns won game five at home by like 30 points. So again, you don't want to overreact to that over the course of like a, a playoff series going back and forth. But I'm sorry. You're a 64-win team that finished eight games clear of anyone else with a game seven on your home court in the second round of the playoffs. That is very different than just any other playoff game in a series going back and forth or a regular season game where you can say, hey, we got our ass kicked, it happens. Like, that cannot happen in that scenario. I don't care. You can lose it. That happens maybe if you say shots weren't going in, they got out, whatever. Fine. But to lose by 33 at home in a game seven after they had lost game six by 27. So they lost game six and seven by a combined 60 points, man, as the top overall seed after going up 3-2 to be down 80 to 40, to be doubled up at one point in the third quarter, again, at home in game seven as the top overall seed like that, that cannot be justified or swept away as just, well, blowouts happen sometimes and you get your asking. Like there was a level of quit that had to have happened for them to be embarrassed like that in that specific setting i completely understand why some players and 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 people think that pat beverly made a clown of himself by you know going on national tv yesterday and basically just to slander chris paul and the Suns. i do understand where those people are coming from i happen to find pat beverly entertaining even when i disagree with him because i think i think there's almost something admirable about how, how authentic and like honest he is again even when i disagree with him because i think there are a lot of people not just in the nba who you know might talk that shit but would never actually do it in public they might do it behind people's back whatever and pat beverly at least has the whatever you want to call it to be able to go on national tv and know that this is probably going to piss off his peers like he just doesn't care so i respect that part of it but i do understand why people think he made a clown of himself yesterday having said that as long as the attacks don't get you know personal or across any like specific lines if you're keeping it to basketball i also think whether it's paul booker anyone related to the suns who played in that game part of the organization they are fair game for every bit of criticism and basketball related slander you want to throw them after that game like they deserve it after that so again as long as there's no personal lines being crossed i'm not gonna say oh like Pat Beverly crossed the line by going on national. Yeah, did, did he kind of clown himself by doing it? Does it seem petty? 100%. Is it deserved if you're the Suns? Absolutely. Like, we're sitting here in Toronto, man. We witnessed LeBronto, okay? we I witnessed a 59. I was in the building when a 59-win top-seeded Raptors team on their way to being swept had to watch LeBron James literally test out different shots and play around with his jumper, and spin the ball in Serge Ibaka's face the year before, and sip beer the year before. Like, I don't think that was one-tenth as embarrassing as the Suns having what just happened to them happen in Game 7 at home as the top overall seed. It is just shameful. What do you make of this Aiton stuff? Like, do you, I mean, I guess you can take it back and be like, they didn't give him the max in the summer, and I guess that's where the sort of fissures right. began. And so maybe in that sense, this isn't coming out of nowhere, but obviously, you know, Monty basically benches him in that game seven, gets asked about it after the game, says it's like an internal issue that he doesn't want to discuss. But Woj comes out and says, Aiton doesn't feel valued by the organization, wants to seek employment elsewhere, potentially. The Suns are still in the driver's seat because he's an RFA, so they can either just match any offer sheet he signs i mean they could they could just come correct and give him the max 
on the first day of free agency and maybe that smooths things over or they can if they think this is irreparable they can look to sign and trade him and i honestly think if like that's the only circumstance in which i would actually do that if i was phoenix like if they think it can't be salvaged then they look to sign and trade him and bring something back because if not i don't think ayton's actually a max player to be perfectly honest but what you get into the question of like what else does phoenix do like what like what are they where do they go otherwise you know like he is still if you have Devin Booker and Chris Paul operating at the peak of their powers, like he is still a really, really good compliment to those guys and somebody that you very much want to be anchoring your team on defense and providing like a, an excellent screen and roll target for those guys at the offensive end of the floor. And I thought he had a massively disappointing series for the record, yeah. but I, like, I don't think if that's the thing that would potentially be like swaying or clouding Phoenix's decision-making here, I would caution against that because he was obviously very important to their finals run last year. And I think could still be really important to, to any finals or title aspirations they have in the future. Uh, I just, I mean, if, if it's an interpersonal thing that they think can't be fixed, then yeah, I, I guess they would have to explore sign and trade avenues, but it's like apart from, potential luxury tax concerns, which I understand we're talking about Robert Sarver's Phoenix Suns here, right? Like yeah. those are real concerns for Robert him. Sarver's goat shitting Phoenix Suns. So I, I guess that could play a factor. But apart from that, like if you're looking at it from just a cap perspective, it's like, okay, so you don't want to pay DeAndre Ayton the max because what? Like what you, you're not creating cap space. Like you're still going to have Booker's max on the books. You got Chris Paul's like, contract on the books for next season at least probably the season after that as well bridges's new contract is kicking in this coming season you got to pay cam johnson like you're not going to have cap space so unless it's just about straight up avoiding the tax then i don't really see like what what's their reasoning for trying to like save five million dollars a year just by like getting him on a sub max deal it doesn't make sense no that would be clown behavior in a vacuum i agree that deandre isn't worth the max but i think where people sometimes get too caught up in like this guy's not worth the max is this guy worth the max is one there i think there would be at least one of 29 other teams not everyone has cap space obviously but i'm just saying in general if everyone had the opportunity to give deandre and you know whatever they wanted i think at least one of the 29 other teams and probably much more than that would be willing to give him the max that's one two there's also like what people forget is you can't just look at it as okay do I consider this guy a max player? And if not, I just wouldn't give it to him. You have to consider from the perspective of a team like Phoenix that is in the middle right now of what seems to be a closing championship window and look at it almost like what would be worse or what can you not afford to do more? Give DeAndre in the max or lose him? And I think, personally, I think losing him would be much more costly than overpaying him, which they would be doing if they gave him the max. I would be losing him for nothing, though. Right, well, there would be a sign and trade. I get, And that's the thing. I guess we'd have to see what that package is before I say that's that would cost them more. I guess that would be my caution to whether it's the Suns or anyone out there hearing this and thinking, well, you know, he's obviously not a max player to me. Like, I just wouldn't do it is it's not that easy. Like, there, it's, it's possible overpaying him is actually less costly than losing him. And when you're a team that is supposed to be playing for a championship and trying to capitalize on a very, very short championship window, 
it's an even trickier decision. It's not just as easy as, is this guy a max player or not? Okay, let me just throw one potential framework at you that just popped into my head as like a hypothetical Mm -hmm. of something that I haven't thought through, but that could potentially work for both teams, okay? What about like DeAndre Ayton for OG and Anobi straight up? Something like that. Wow. You know what I mean? Like that's, I think that's kind of in the ballpark of what they could potentially expect, you know, the type of player they could expect to get back. Another young player, but like in, in a bit of a different mold, you know, you just find a team like Toronto, Charlotte, these teams that need traditional fives. I mean, you know, Toronto and Charlotte may differ, like they may not agree that they need a traditional five. Obviously, yeah. you know, the Raptors team build suggests that they don't prioritize that necessarily. So I don't even know if they would make that trade. I don't even know if they should make a trade like that. But that's something where I could see, you know, OG. I don't know, maybe Miles Bridges has actually like played himself out of that type of conversation, but a player like that, where maybe it's a wing player, um, somebody with a little bit more versatility that they would be getting in the door, capitalizing on a team that like feels like they need a little bit of size on the back line, something like that. I mean, I kind of like it. And I actually do think both teams would make that move. If a deal like that were to go down, I think it would also say a lot about whether there are any like concerns with Aiton. Because I, where was the report now? It wasn't part of it that like there are concerns on the Sun side, like he stays up all night gaming or something like that. I think I, I think well, I saw I think that. somebody wrote a was it Malika Andrews maybe that wrote a feature maybe. about that 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 but, cited his yeah his gaming but, tendencies. He, and he's not the only NBA player, by the way, where his team has concerns about his late night gaming habits, but. Um, what I was going to say is if a trade like that actually went down, I think it would speak to the fact that maybe those concerns are overblown. Like if a team like Toronto and Masai Ujiri's brain trust traded a guy like OG Ananobi to bring DeAndre Ayton in, I think a move like that would very quickly quiet those concerns because the Rap- a team like the Raptors isn't doing that if they have those concerns. Um, right. But I, I actually think in terms of fit need, I think the Raptors would hate to see OG go, but I think they would do it in that situation. Interesting. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I think there will be a lot of interested parties one way or another. And yeah. I'm, I'm really curious, actually, to see what kind of market develops if Phoenix does make him available. Because I think there are, yeah, there are a lot of teams that could use a player like Aiton. And I, I yeah, I, I don't know what kind of player Phoenix, I guess, would target in exchange for him. Because, yeah, you could target a wing player to give you that, I guess, flexibility. But then, so what, you're just not going to plug that gap at the five, like are your JaVale McGee is going to be your starting center. Sarich, I guess, is coming back from injury. Like he's going to be your starting center. You just commit to small ball. Like I'm not really sure where they would go from there. But okay, that's that's a long time yeah. we've spent on the Suns. I do want to say one thing before we move on to another uh, another team postmortem. Just when it comes to Luca, because obviously so much. Like don't get me wrong, he got his praise and people know how good Luca Doncic is and the kind of trajectory he's on career wise, but. We do, all of us, kind of get so in, especially when a team loses as spectacularly as Phoenix did, obviously so much of the conversation is about like how they kind of fumbled things away. And we do sometimes lose sight of the other side of it. So I just want to say like how incredible Luka Doncic is, but also the moment of him after game five, after his team just lost by 30 points and he's now facing elimination in the tunnel to the cameras saying it like it's okay they're talking tough when they're up big or whatever he's saying like to have that kind of 
confidence and stage presence still in that moment, and then to go out and lead your team to game six and seven wins by a combined 60 points, smiling the whole time. I just thought it was like a really, really cool moment for his very young but quite burgeoning legacy. And I just thought it was so perfect. And it was like literally everything Michael Jordan preached about in that scene with the baseball bat and the cigar in the last dance when he talks about, you know, the sign of a good man is someone who can talk shit when the score is zero zero when you're down, not just when you're up. And I I just thought that that like Luca moment from the from that tunnel walk after game five to the end of game seven was perfect. Like, you know, if you subscribe to the gospel of Jordan, Luca Doncic is definitely a prophet. Yeah, Luca's pretty good. Uh, uh, we're we're going to preview that Mavs Warriors series later in the app, so I'm sure we can talk about Luca when we do that. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. I think if we want to get the rest of these postmortems out of the way, I think we can do the Grizzlies one like pretty quickly, because I don't have a ton to say about them. I just think they had an amazing season. Honestly... Like, yeah, they had a tough time with Minnesota in the first round, kind of shot themselves in the foot on a few occasions and didn't, you know, I guess at points didn't entirely look prepared for the moment, but I thought acquitted themselves really well in that series against the Warriors where, you know, I, I could have totally seen them winning that series if Ja was healthy, honestly. Um, and then, you know, at the same time, like you, you saw also like some of the, concerns about jaw where like the i guess the issue with the way that team is currently constructed is it's really hard for them to manufacture offense when jaw's out but it's hard for them to defend at a level they've otherwise proven themselves capable of um when he's out there like he's it's interesting because the uh, stylistically obviously they are not similar players at all but it's a very similar conundrum to what the hawks are with trey yeah, I I think the the Grizzlies offensively have actually shown that they have sort of more stuff that they can go to, more counters mm-hmm. when Jaws out. Like they they play kind of a, a much different style, obviously, right? Like it's without one guy dominating the ball, it's very egalitarian. It's almost Warriors esque in the way that they run stuff through the high post, a lot of split action, a lot of off ball movement. Um and I think it's it's kind of fun to watch, like because they they really do transform into a different team at both ends of the floor, and like especially defensively. I've mentioned it before, but like they they absolutely uh, lock shit down when when Jaw's not out there, kind of compromising their rotations and and getting beat off the bounce. Like he he's got to get better defensively. But apart from that, I mean, just just a great season for Memphis and. I think you know the important thing to keep in mind, like I say all the time, growth isn't always linear. So I think it's totally fair to expect big things from this team next season and beyond. But it also wouldn't be all that surprising to me to see them plateau or even regress next year uh, just because like a lot of things went right for them this season and 
you don't really know what next season is going to look like. I do think that the Ja, Jaron, Desmond Bain three-man core should be really special for a really long time. And so like, even if, let's say they get bounced in the first round next season, which I have no idea what next season is going to look like for them, but I wouldn't, that, that wouldn't like dissuade me in any way from feeling like this team still has a really bright future where, you know, they're going to make multiple conference finals, for instance. Like, I think that this is going to be a team to be reckoned with in the Western, in the Western conference for a while. Um, so that's, that's really like all I come away from this thinking. And like, if we're looking at their off season, I mean, the only two like significant pieces of their rotation that are free agents are Tyus Jones and Kyle Anderson. I think they should make every attempt to bring Tyus Jones back. I think he was a super important part of that team. I mean, that their bench was crucial to a lot of what they did. And obviously he had to step in and start in John Moran's absence, which, you know, he, he was absent a lot this season. So I think they should try and bring him back. I don't know about slow-mo, uh, but apart from that, like everyone's coming back, uh, jaws extension eligible. I'm assuming he's going to get the full max right away. And that'll be that, you know, Jaron's locked in on an extension, like unless they have like a big trade up their sleeves, which I suppose is possible. Uh, I don't know. I feel like this is more or less the team that we're going to see going into next season. The only thing concerning to me long-term is jaws ability to stay on the floor given if you look at the, the games he's already missed in his young career, and as we've talked about before, just the way he plays, the the unbelievably entertaining and audacious way he plays mm-hmm. can also bite him. But other than that, the only thing I'll add to what you were saying, because I agree with you about growth not being linear, and it, it, like they could eventually get to the destination we think is possible for them and being a, a title team in a few years, but have some road bumps on the way. Maybe they take a step back next season. They get upset in the first round a couple of years from now. It could happen. The only thing I was going to add to that, though, is that like I've thought that of them the last couple of years. Like I thought they surprised in Jaws' rookie year, and I was like, okay, I think this team's going somewhere, but they're probably going to take a step back next year. And then they surprised in his sophomore year and made the playoffs. And I think game one game one of that series against Utah. Mm-hmm. And then coming to this year, I didn't really like, well, neither one of us really liked what they had done in the offseason and both thought, okay, this is the year they actually take a step back on their like trajectory up. And instead they turn into a 56 win <laughs> number two seed in the Western Conference. So as much as I agree with you about growth not being linear and, and the fact that it's very possible there will be road bumps before they get to their ultimate destination, John and this team just continue to also prove me wrong when I think those road bumps are coming. So I say that and it's like, uh, maybe they just win 63 games next year and we're talking about them like in the finals. I don't know. I mean, look, if if Jaw just comes back as like the exact same player and Bain just maybe gets like a little bit better, like I think he's got to develop his left hand a little bit. That's like maybe the one thing where I'm like, okay, if you want to have the ball in your hands more often, like teams are, are shading him to his left. His left hand is still not very good. Um, he could get a bit better. I think the biggest thing is like, okay, Jaron, can you cut down on the fouling a little bit more? He's already cut down on it a bit. Like, cut down the fouls even more so you can stay on the floor for longer. And like, let's see that offensive game take shape a little bit more. Because when he's out there, he is a monster defensively. I mean, in our minds, like, we thought he was the best defensive player in the league this season. Both of us yep. did. Yep. So, that's how good he is at that end of the floor. I would just like to see more of that because he's in foul trouble less often. And I think it would be, it would be massive 
for Memphis if he could just get back to honestly just being the offensive player he was two years ago when he was shooting like 40% from three on high volume. Like it, he wouldn't even nef- necessarily have to like improve his inside the arc scoring craft that much, like just get back to being that kind of shooter. And that is life changing for the Grizzlies. Um, but yeah, I'm, I, I'm just excited about this team and, and excited to see what, what the future holds because um the, the way that they've built it, you know, like obviously the market being so reinvigorated after, you know, the, this era was, you know, b- naturally sort of like born out of the grit and grind era where that era cycled out and like this era sort of immediately took its place. And I think it's going to be really cool to, to see the cultural footprint that this iteration of the team makes in Memphis, because we know obviously all about yeah. the cultural footprint of grit and grind. So dude, they're playing whoop that trick after wins, man. This team, this, <laughs> the vibes are literally immaculate Yeah, around this team and the city right now. Uh, you want to save Sixers for last in this postmortem thing and, and quickly touch on bucks. Well, quickly. I mean, they're, they're they were the defending champs. I, Chris Middleton's injury killed them. They might not have won the title anyway, but it definitely killed them in this series against a defense like Boston to lose their only true half-court self-creator, really. Um, you know, Giannis is his own beast, but he's not that kind of player, as we know, affects the game in every other way. Um, and, and losing, I think that, Honestly, the crazy thing about this series is that for, for long stretches, he like was that to shoulder all of that on ball responsibility and do it at an outrageously high level. Like, you know, despite the fact that Boston was able to kind of suppress his efficiency, he wound up averaging 34, 15 and seven or something in this series. Like I have, I have nothing but praise for Giannis after this series, after, you know, he had already added to his legend status last year. Um, and, and yeah, kudos to him for taking on that burden in an area, a facet of the game that isn't really, it's like his, the one thing that isn't his strength. Mm-hmm. But I, in the end, I think it caught up to them, especially against a defense like Boston. And I mean, I don't know, like we're talking about their future. It's like, well, they're still going to have Giannis and yep. Holiday. Okay. You know, there's obviously been some regression, especially offensively over the last couple of years as he's getting older and that probably will continue. But if Middleton is healthy and they just have Giannis being Giannis, like they're going to be in the picture every year. I guess where the questions arise are like, how do they fill out this roster given the amount of money and cap space they're committing to those three guys when they have shown recently that like they are, the organization will spend, but they're also seemingly a bit scared of the like big luxury tax payments, right? Like that... PJ Tucker has said it. That's the reason they didn't bring him back because of the luxury tax ramifications. Mm. So um, while I do think they'll be in the picture every year, while I do think they're spending in their own way, I also think if they want to fill out this roster in ways that make them a little more playoff proof over the next few years, they're going to have to spend to that tax. And if they're not willing to do so, well, then they'll be reaping what they sow. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think in terms of the core players, the only one I really have concerns about right now is Brooke. He's yeah. going to be 34 next season. He's got this back surgery in the rear view. I thought at times in the playoffs, he looked just like old Brooke, basically. But there were definitely times where he looked like a, a, a kind of worn down version of that player. And I think offensively more than anything, I just, 
I mean, he should, he was one for 13 from three in that Boston series. And we, we talked about it a number of times on this podcast about how, you know, even if he was four for 13, five for 13 from three in that series, I don't think Boston would have been treating him any differently when he was standing out on the perimeter. Like he's just not really functionally a, a stretch five anymore. So does his kind of like post game, his interior scoring, does he have enough of that left to stay viable offensively? Because I do think he still brings really high level rim protection, obviously. Um, but I think they, they may need to start thinking about a contingency plan to replace him there, like, or at least to rely on him less, whether that means finding another rim protecting big or just filling out their wing rotation to the point that playing Giannis at five for longer stretches becomes more tenable. Um, but that's contingent on like, I mean, I don't know. Do they want that for Giannis? Does Giannis want that for Giannis? Like as he sort of gets into, I mean, he's in his prime years now, isn't showing any signs of slowing down physically, but that's a lot of attrition potentially to put on your franchise player. And I, I think, you know, I guess in that sense, like, like Portis, who is a potential free agent looms kind of large you know, if you think about how important he's become to this team, he's got a player option for next year at 4.5 million, which would obviously make sense for him to decline unless like we saw last summer, he just really wants to stick around Milwaukee long-term and wants to opt in so that they can have full bird rights on him next off season and re-sign him to whatever deal they want or, you know, whatever deal he wants. Because last summer they didn't have bird rights on him at all which is why he could only sign there for um I don't I actually don't remember if it was like the biannual exception or part of the taxpayer MLE but basically sign there for you know the four and a half million with the player option on year two so now they have early bird rights on him which means if he declines the option they can sign him for basically the full mid-level amount which I actually think would be fair value for him yep uh, but he took a big discount to stay last year so i don't know maybe he'll want to explore the market and see if he can get more uh, i'm interested to see what happens there and then Connaughton, who it's funny to remember because like we clowned the bucks for messing up his contract structure to the point that they actually had to add an extra year on his deal and now it's like he has a player option that i could very much see him opting out of and he's become a really sneakily important part of this team and <laughs> i think uh it would very much behoove the Bucks to to bring him back. So those are, I guess, like the two big free agency things that I'll be watching. But um, yeah, I mean, more broad strokes. We talked about it a lot. They could definitely use more ball handling, more half-court shot creation. They certainly don't want to wind up being as dependent on Giannis as they were in that Boston series. And, you know, Middleton's healthy. Obviously, they wouldn't have to. But uh, I, I'm just, I'm not sure how they address that issue with the means available to them. There are decisions to make and things that need to be addressed, but to your point, it feels a little bit like small potatoes when they have the best player in the world and two very strong complementary pieces who are still basically in their primes. Like Holiday maybe just had the best season of his career and Middleton is still, you know, clearly playing at a very high level. And then like the fourth guy who on his good days still looks like one of the best defensive big men in basketball. Like I think they'll be fine. And right back in title contention next season and probably the season after that. I, you know, this isn't this isn't some big setback for them. You know, like if anything, I think it's a real positive 
and a, an encouraging sign that they were able to push Boston to seven with with Middleton out. Sixers. Saved from embarrassment, I think, by the Suns. At least saved from some embarrassment. But the way they went out, pretty sad in that game six, was very much in line with the built-to-quit narrative <laughs> that I had put out there when they first traded for James Harden. When, don't get me wrong, I loved the trade for them. Thought it did obviously raise their championship ceiling. But one thing I said at the time is the one thing this doesn't do is change. If, if anything, it's actually make them even more built to quit now when the going will get tough. And that played out in that game six when James Harden, as he has done in elimination games in the past, when things start snowballing downhill, just completely takes himself out of a game and looks like he would rather be anywhere else. And it happened again. And the Sixers have been sent packing in the second round again. And they obviously have some decisions to make. I mean, they traded for James Harden. James Harden claimed at the time, like even though he didn't get the paperwork done in time or whatever to uh, opt into that player option for next year, that he still planned to do it. I don't know what's going to happen now. The, for my first question for you would be, do you even think the Sixers will have to give him max money anymore? Because before that would have been a ludicrous question because the answer obviously would have been like, yes, they have to because if they don't, someone else will. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one else will exactly at what his max is like we talked about the eight and max earlier that's a much different max coming off his rookie scale deal when he has not checked any of the boxes necessary for a super max much different for james harden coming off of two super maxes already the raises he is eligible for at his stage in his career that max would be the biggest in nba history i don't think any team is actually giving him that so i no longer no exactly so that's what i'm saying i i actually think we're now in a situation where like they don't have to give him the max to keep him around unless he's completely delusional and says f you guys if you don't want to give it to me i'm leaving but then okay good luck you're not getting it from anyone else either i think he ends up staying on you know something less than the max but i do think there are legitimate questions to ask of this team and whether this team can can truly contend or win a title Mm -hmm. given the player James Harden is becoming at this stage in his career like you I praise Joel Embiid and admire his toughness for playing through the injuries he played through I still will say there are concerns for me when like I don't think he said anything wrong or I don't think he said anything incorrect when he said that you know, they, the people are waiting for Houston Harden. That's just not who, who he is anymore. We've said that. Like, I understand that. But much like with the comments about Ben Simmons last year, which, again, I agreed with, you have to understand your responsibility standing when you are the franchise player. You can maybe have those conversations in private. Yeah. But you cannot, like, you can't be doing this. I mean, I'm so, like... As good as Joel Embiid is, he cannot be doing this every year. And I get, he played through injuries. He's like been important to them in the past. Even when I've criticized the way he's played, their plus minus has clearly shown they're still obviously dead without him and surviving with him. But this cannot happen every year where when they get eliminated, someone else is being kind of thrown under the bus. I mean, he could spin it in a way where he's like, no, I'm just, you know, saying about the player he is. I'm not throwing anyone under the bus. You're throwing them under the bus, man. I don't care. Like... This can't happen every year, and it, I don't know, like, it's, it would be concerning for me if I'm a Sixers fan being like, is this guy really, I'm not talking about skill-wise, no, but there's 
like I, I, can't, I don't even know the words I'm searching for, but there is something there or not there, I should say, with Joel Embiid, where it's like, I don't know if this is the guy that can be like the centerpiece of a locker room when you are a championship level team that does need to go through, you know, a ton of tough moments on the way to winning four rounds. And mm. you need the guy at the centerpiece to be able to hold things together, not just with his talent on the court, but in the locker room and like in a lot of other ways. And I don't know if Joel Embiid can be that guy. Doesn't mean he can't be the best player because there can be other guys in the locker room that kind of take on more. But like, I, I don't know if he can be that centerpiece locker room guy based on the, the things he said immediately after their elimination the last few years. I don't think he can be. And I don't really see how anyone can argue against that point. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, we're, we are just basing it on those comments and that's that oughtn't be a, a reflection of the entirety of, of you know, Joel Embiid's persona as a leader or a locker room presence. Like, we don't know. I mean, I think... We, I've heard a lot of things to the effect of like a, a lot of Joel Embiid's teams, teammates really love him. Obviously, Jimmy mm-hmm. Butler still has very fond feelings towards yep. him. And um, I, I don't want to just like hone in on like these few comments that he's made and say, this is evidence right here that Joel Embiid can't lead a championship team, you know, but and, and like, you know, I will default defend Joel Embiid to the death. It's like in terms of his on-court play, his toughness. Any criticism that's been lobbed against him for, you know, whatever perceived, you know, the flopping or just like the the playoff flameouts, like whatever it is, I, I, I have never put that stuff on Joel Embiid and, and I've always like vehemently defended him against those claims and I'll do it again because he was catching heat for playing terribly, at least by his own standards in games five and six of this series, but I think it was extraordinarily courageous and honestly borderline reckless for him to suit up at all in this series with a concussion, with a fractured orbital bone that he got hit in the face again, I think multiple times in this series, like torn ligament in his thumb. I mean, he, he tweaked his back in game five. Like he was a broken man. So, you know, his poor play is not like, it was pretty much entirely due to circumstances beyond his control. And I think it was, insane borderline miraculous that he was able to play well enough in games four and five of this series to get it to level and to have a lot of people including us thinking that they could actually come back and win it that said i was critical of him when he came out and threw ben simmons under the bus last season like you're dealing with people here and i 100 percent agree with everything you said about james harden you know not being houston james harden anymore not being that kind of scorer you know primarily being a playmaker at this point People are sensitive, man. Like James Harden is sensitive. And so I just think even if he is speaking facts, sometimes it would behoove Embiid to just like keep those thoughts to himself or your your point, keep them behind closed doors at least. And I think he especially needs to think about the optics of, of talking about a teammate in such a way after shooting seven for 24 in an elimination game. And like, again, I'm not putting this on him in any way, shape, or form. Like, it was incredible that he played, and it was unsurprising that he struggled, given everything that he was dealing with. But at the end of the day, he still did play terribly by his standards in games five and six. And regardless of all the unfortunate circumstances that contributed to that poor play, 
I just think it's a bad look to even be hinting at any teammate criticism at that point. Like, like you said, swallow your pride, accept, you know, the, the responsibility and the blame on your own shoulders and figure it out moving forward. Like the reality is the Sixers need James Harden to opt in. Like that's, I, I feel like they are praying that that happens so that they can kick the can down the road, see what he looks like next season, maybe another year removed from the hamstring injury and decide how they want to approach his free agency. Like they need that to happen. So at the very least, I feel like they are saddled with Harden for another year if not longer, they need and beat and harden to make this partnership work on and off the court. And I don't know, this is just, maybe it turns out to be nothing. Maybe Harden doesn't care. Maybe he agrees and he's like, I just need to be better. Maybe they smooth it over. I don't know. But like, it just feels like not a great start to what the Sixers have to be hoping is going to be a long and profitable relationship between the two of them. So that's that aspect. And then the, you know, I don't know if you saw the Brian Windhorst report that Daryl Morey is like gung ho about finding a third star. Yes. How do you think he goes about doing that? I mean, apart from trading Maxi, right? That's it. That's literally the only way. If you're ready to trade Tyrese Maxi and don't believe he can be that third star as soon as you need him to be it. Right. Then that's like, that's it. That, you, that's basically what that report is. It, to me, it's they're going to try to trade Tyrese Maxey to land a third star. Do you think Maxey can be that third star? I don't. Interesting. I, what, what, I don't. What do you think What do you think sort of stands in the way of that? <sighs> I think there's like a consistency. I think Maxey can be good enough to be like to look like that third star some nights. Mm-hmm. I don't but think, don't he's think that, re- but don't you think that consistency comes with more time? Like he's 21 and just no, finished fair. his second season in the league. Fair. But what I was going to say is I think he can get there one day. But if we're talking about this as like a one to two year window, depending on like James Harden's current abilities, I don't think Tyrese Maxey can be that consistent third star on a championship team with it. Like definitely not next year. I don't think, I mean, he took a huge step from one to two, so maybe he can be, but I would bet against it right now. If if someone just like for next year, do you think Tyrese Maxey can be the third best player on a championship on the team that wins a championship? I'd say mm-hmm. not yet, not next year. Maybe. Well, I mean the 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 thing of it is like they might need him to be their second best player if they're actually right. going to win a championship next year, and that he definitely cannot be. Yeah, um, I just think. I guess I don't. Maybe this is a bit of a tangent, but like, first of all, I I just like the idea of Maxi as like a long-term piece in Philly. Same. And part of it is that I think he is like, can be really good, can potentially grow into being that third star, can be a really good uh, partner for Embiid and for Harden. Like, I think he's actually a really good connective piece between the two because of his ability to move off of the ball, to attack off of the catch. Like he injects them with pace. Like, I think, I don't know. I don't know how, like, what are they flipping him into that is, changing their life as opposed to just seeing his development through. So there's that. But I think on a more sentimental level, I just love the idea of there's this almost poetic symmetry of Maxi being drafted with the pick the Sixers acquired in exchange for Markel Fultz and now having a chance to grow into something resembling the player that Fultz was supposed to be for that franchise. And I don't know if people know kind of like the, the circuitous journey that that pick took because it's quite a journey. And it's like, it goes all the way back to 2016 when the Thunder traded 
their 2020 first rounder, along with Ursan Ilyasova to the Sixers for Jeremy Grant. They protected the pick for one to 20, top 20 protected. And the stipulation in that protection was if it doesn't convey that year, 2020, you get one shot for it to convey. If it doesn't convey, it immediately becomes two second rounders. So the Sixers then have this pick. But on draft night in 2017, which is the same night they drafted Fultz number one overall after, you know, swapping picks with Boston, trading up to number one, Boston using the number three pick that they got from Philly to draft a guy named Jason Tatum, yada, yada, yada. The Sixers traded that 2020 Thunder first rounder to the Magic in exchange for that night's 25th pick, which they used to draft Andres Pasechniks who wound up playing 28 games, none of them for the Sixers, but that's neither here nor there. Okay, then just before the trade deadline in 2019, the Magic trade that pick back to Philly in exchange for Markel Fultz. Um, so then what happens is basically the Sixers have this pick back, but in order to actually get it as a first rounder the following year, they need the Thunder to finish with a top 10 record which becomes complicated when the Thunder that offseason embark on what appears to be a teardown. They trade Paul George, they trade Jeremy Grant, and of course they trade Russell Westbrook for Chris Paul and then immediately look to reroute Chris Paul to a third team. But incredibly, they can't find they can't find a team that's willing to trade anything palatable for Chris Paul, so they keep him. And in like the second last game of the season, which is played in the Disney bubble, in a game the Thunder are actively trying to lose so they can keep the pick, they come back from like 22 points down in the second half to beat Miami on a Mike Muscala three-pointer just before the buzzer. Former Sixer Mike Muscala hits a three to win that game, and that allows the Sixers to keep the pick that they use to draft Tyrese Maxey. So... I don't know. I just think that's, I'm not saying that's going to factor into Daryl Morey's decision-making. We know Daryl Morey's proclivities when it comes to star hunting. I'm sure he will dangle Maxi and try and get, you know, Donovan Mitchell or Zach Levine in the door if he can. But I just, the sentimental part of me just loves that, that symmetry and that story and wants to see Tyrese Maxi thrive in Philly for a long time. And that is one of the greatest draft pick journeys in league history, by the way. <laughs> Obviously, it would never happen, but the funniest thing I could imagine pie-in-the-sky stuff would be like some summer meeting where James Harden and Kyrie Irving bury the hatchet and then Sixers try to turn Tyrese Maxey into Kyrie Irving to build the most toxic big three <laughs> in league history. But all right, I think... Yeah, think don't, don't Kyrie and Harden just like actively dislike each other at this point, though? That's what I'm saying. There would have to be some sort of summer summit at Joel Embiid's home where Joel Embiid sits them both down, Frank Costanza style, like uh, the airing of grievances, tells them both what he hates about them and, and throws both their games under the bus. Harden and Kyrie then bond over being thrown under the bus by Joel Embiid. Yeah. Bury the hatchet. They have, to do, Maxie... feats, they have to do feats of strength first. <laughs> yes. They have to fight each other first around the aluminum pole. But anyway, I think that's enough of the postmortems. We're at about an hour. We do still want to touch on the conference final. So we're going to do that, but we're going to do it very, very briefly. We're not going too in-depth here because we're going to have so much more to talk about once games are starting to be played and we can look back at, I guess, uh, game ones and one game two by Friday morning, Friday afternoon. So uh, where do you want to start? West or east? Uh, Let's start east. 
Celtics okay. Heat uh, rematch of the conference finals we saw in the bubble just two years ago, but bit of a different look, I guess, for for the series stylistically for both teams. I mean, personnel wise, like the bones of the of both teams, I think are pretty well intact. But uh, I think a couple important changes along the margins that are going to make this series have like a, a, a bit of a different look and feel from the last time we saw them play for the Eastern Conference crown. Lowry continues to be sidelined by this hamstring injury. He's out for yeah. game one. We saw him play, what, two games in that series and look clearly hampered by yeah. something, which we know is the hamstring to injury. To the point that games. it was like a big benefit to Miami to have him yeah. sidelined. Literally the opposite of Kyle Lowry's entire career, right? When he's been a plus minus king. Well, I do think that he clearly are a good team, even without Lowry. Like, look where they are. I do think, you know, the same way we talked about um, Phoenix's lack of creation after their top two players coming back to bite them, the lack of Middleton coming back to bite Milwaukee eventually. I do think this might be when the chickens come home to roost for Miami against this Boston defense that is just unbefriggin'-leavable. And so my question for you is, if, say, Lowry either just doesn't play in the series or is not himself, like is the Lowry we saw last series, between Jimmy Butler, Tyler Hero, I guess, and you know this version of Victor Oladipo, do you think the Heat have enough creation to win four of seven against this Boston team? I would bet against it. Yeah, but at the same time, you know, history has taught me to doubt this Heat team at my own peril. So I'm not gonna say they can't. I mean, Jimmy Butler has been, to my mind, like the third best player in the playoffs so far after Giannis and Luca, basically like I'd put him right there, man. I, I would honestly put on, and you know how I feel about Luca, but I would say because of Jimmy's defensive impact in these playoffs too, mm. I might say he's been better than Luca. Like I might say he's been the best player of the players remaining in the playoffs. Yeah. And so look, th- this is a fundamentally different challenge for him than going up against certainly Atlanta's defense and also Philly's defense, which you know, had a compromised Joel Embiid manning the back line. And apart from that, like a lot of perimeter players that he could mismatch hunt. He's not going to be able to do that against this Boston team. So it's going to be, it's going to be a big challenge for him to even remotely approximate the production that he has generated to this point. I think, look, the the Miami saving grace potentially is going to be their own defense, right? Like that's how they're going to win the series. And then just hope that they can kind of scratch out enough offense to to get past a Celtics team like that's you know the big question to me is like which which of these teams is going to be able to score more effectively against the others airtight defense and it's like I don't know it's sort of the same thing that I talked about in the series against the Nets and the series against the Bucks where it's like like those teams Miami is going to have to make some decisions in terms of how they structure their lineups and finding the offense-defense balance, right? Like, Hero is going to have to play because they're going to need his shot creation, and yet that is going to give Boston uh, a soft spot that they can attack, just like they attacked Grayson Allen and, to a lesser extent, Bobby Portis in the series against Milwaukee, just like they attacked Kyrie and Seth Curry and all the other, you know, small guards that uh, Brooklyn had to play in that series in order to get enough offense on the floor against this bear of a Boston defense. Like that's that's what makes Boston so tough. Like they don't have to make those kinds of decisions because their offensive lineups are pretty well indistinguishable 
from their best defensive lineups. Like they, they did go small at points in that series against the Bucks. You know, in part because Robert Williams was injured, uh, and also in part because I, I think they just needed to find a counter for that very interior-oriented Bucks defensive scheme. But even in those looks, it's like, okay, so you're small, but like you still have four or five all defensive caliber stalwarts in the lineup. Like you're probably going to be okay. So here's what I'm interested to see actually, because I went back and watched their last regular season game, which happened at the end of March, which was basically like the only game they played this season when like both teams were close to like full health. And the Celtics actually didn't switch as much in that game as I was expecting. Like they had Horford in drop a lot. Um, they were kind of giving up pretty decent looks to like Struess and Lowry coming off of dribble handoffs where like, you know, whether it was Horford or Grant Williams or Tice, like they were sagging off and not really pressing up to take those looks away. So I'm interested to see like, do they get switchier in the series to try and like flatten Miami out a little bit? Um, and if they do, like what can Bam do against that? You know, whether it's on the back end of switches whether it's slipping out to kind of take advantage of the momentary sort of uh, gap that's created when those switches occur. Like he, he is like the central figure in this series to me because at one end of the floor, it's like, this is something that I think will carry over from the conference finals a couple of years ago where Boston like rewired its offense. Basically like there wasn't any one five pick and roll, you know, they're like, we're not involving Bam. We don't want to draw him into a switch. Like we don't, we're not going to be able to do anything with this matchup on the perimeter. So it's like small, small pick and rolls, man. Like go after Miami's weaker defenders, go after Gabe Vincent, go after hero, you know, Struce, I guess to a lesser extent and see what Miami does with that. Like those are the ones they're not going to switch. I don't think like they're going to blitz or show and recover or they'll zone up. Like they'll do a lot of different things to try and keep those guys out of bad switches against the likes of Tatum and Brown for the most part. And and that's where Boston can kind of find their way, I think, to some quality offense. Whereas like I just don't think those easy avenues exist for Miami's offense. I don't know. What's what's your read on this matchup? I mean, I honestly think it's pretty much a toss-up, and I think these teams are really, really evenly matched. I think the Lowry absence or deficiencies will hurt Miami. But on the Celtics side, I mean, Marcus Smart is questionable. He's got a midfoot sprain that could keep him out. I mean, a midfoot sprain, like that could end up being a multiple game absence if he misses a game at all. Um, Rob Williams still dealing with it. So like, I think there there are enough banged up bodies on both sides where I'm not going to say Lowry being out is going to be the deciding factor here. I do think it's close enough that this is going seven. I don't know, man. Like Miami's going to have home court, but... <sighs> The Celtics have been basically the best team in the NBA since January. Like, like this is as close to flip a coin for me as it gets. Um, Even in terms of like who's the best player on the court, I got between what Jimmy's been this playoffs and what Tatum is. I think that's pretty much a toss up at this point too. Like this series, I think is going to be really fun and just like a different level level of competitive. Like gun to my (laughs) gun to my head, I guess. I think I'd go Celtics in seven. Mm. I'm going to pick Celtics in six. I don't think it gets to seven. I just think they have, they have more answers to more problems than Miami does. Um, But again, like it's underestimating 
the Heat underestimating Jimmy Butler is always a dangerous game. So I, I don't think I would be surprised if Miami found a way to win because that's just what they do. They find ways to win. But uh, yeah, with with Lowry out, I just don't know if their half-court offense can really generate enough against this Boston defense. I think it's going to be really, really tough sledding. Um, and I think, again, it comes back to Bam for me. It's like in that series a couple of years ago, he kind of demolished the Celtics, but that was him trucking Daniel Tice one-on-one and also you know, taking advantage of a Celtics defense that was playing drop a lot of the time because you're not going to switch with like Kemba Walker, basically, you know, and that's, it's just a much, much different uh, Boston defense now than it was then. And I think it's going to be a, a challenge for him to find any kind of individual offense in this series. So yeah, that's, that's kind of my feeling about that right now. I think Boston sort of has the edge there. So this is the first ever uh, NBA conference finals that doesn't feature at least one of the top four finishers in MVP voting. My question for you is, who do you think is the best player remaining? Is it Luka? Is it Jimmy? Is it Tatum? Is it Curry? Who uh, who do you think is the best player remaining in the NBA playoffs right now? You had to pick one for one game. Luka. That's, yeah. I mean, I, I would, I'd agree. I'd He's agree. so good. I know, He's so man. good. I know. And that's a good segue then to the only series we haven't previewed so far, the West Final, Dallas-Golden yeah. State, where... I think the Warriors are the better team. They are. And, you know, I feel like it should be the end of the road for Dallas, but they should have. I mean, I thought the Suns were going to handle them pretty easily. And, like, they're at a point now where they're deep enough where it's like, okay, you know, like it's not out of the realm of possibility for things to go their way enough to win four games. And if they do that, they're in the finals. And it's like, again, then it's just you're in a small sample. So, like, they, Luca and, and the defense and, kids coaching, like all of it has got them to a point now where even though I still stand by everything I said where I thought like they have not done a good job, in my opinion, of maximizing the supporting cast around Luka. I think Brunson's obviously been great. I think tr- making the move to get off of the Porzingis contract, bring Dinwiddie in has been a big help. Dinwiddie's been really good for them. Yeah. And I think the role players in general have stepped up. But in, in a, like overall, I still think they having done the best job of like maximizing the talent around Luca in his years in the NBA. And yet having said all that Luca kids coaching the defense, the role players have got them to a point now where there are four teams left. None is a juggernaut. Everyone just needs eight wins to win a championship. And if you're Dallas, you're probably sitting there thinking we like our chances with Luca Doncic on our team as you know, one of four teams that just needs eight wins. Like they're at that point where they're close enough. They can smell it, and it's not out of the realm of possibility that Luka Doncic just drags his team to a championship at 23 years old. I don't. I'm not picking them to do it, but they're close enough where that is no longer some pie in the sky thing. Even with this supporting cast, any of the four teams remaining could very well win the championship, and I don't Crazy. think that is very often the case. Like even when we get into these later rounds and it's the final four, you would think, you know, maybe there's often that kind of equilibrium where you're not sure who's going to win, but I really don't know who's going to win. And it could definitely be Dallas. And I I will say I was really critical of the Porzingis trade. I was dead wrong about that, you know? And, you know, even at the time I was like, I I think this probably has something to do with the fact they just don't think Porzingis is ever going to be healthy. Uh, You know, more so, but more so than the fact that they just like really had to have Spencer Dinwiddie and Davis Bertans. But like Dinwiddie has really turned his season around since coming to Dallas. I mean, Good Lord, was he good in that game seven against Phoenix? He destroyed them 
almost as much as Luca did, you know, when they were just going five out and he was attacking one-on-one time after time after time, getting in the rim, hitting step back threes. They're obviously not going to get that Spencer Dinwiddie every night. They might get that Spencer Dinwiddie once or if they're lucky twice in a series, but that can make a big difference. And obviously the, the addition of that supplemental ball handling has been really crucial and they haven't missed Porzingis in the front court because of the way that Kleba has stepped up. And, you know, Powell has more or less done his job uh, as like a rim rolling five who can protect the rim a little bit. But the big revelation has just been Kleba. We knew what he was capable of defensively uh, and like the versatility in terms of his switchability and also his rim protection. But him shooting 49% from three has like completely transformed this Dallas team in the playoffs. Like it changed the shape of that series against Utah. Uh, it changed the shape of the series against the Suns, and it's given them this option to go five out without really compromising anything at the defensive end of the floor. And that's just been massive. Like as good as Brunson has been, I feel like Kleba's maybe been their second best or at least second most important player in the playoffs so far. And those five out lineups are obviously going to be a huge factor in this series against Golden State. And, you know, I'm, I'm really curious to see if the Warriors can have more success defending those lineups than either Utah or Phoenix did like if I mean if man if Gary Payton the second was healthy like I think right. that's that would change things a lot like that would just sort of give them a natural primary defender on Luka as it is you know I don't know where they go to I mean I guess Wiggins right like that's the guy that they yeah it's, I, it'll be Wiggins to start off on him for sure um but it's it's not going to be like a, a individual type of thing like there's going to be a lot of help involved obviously in doing that and then Luca, I mean, he's going to hunt Steph Curry. He is going to hunt Jordan Poole. And this is going to be the challenge for Golden State is like, how do they protect those guys? And like Poole especially is one I'm going to be watching because I'm thinking about the ways in which Phoenix came up short offensively against his Dallas defense and the way in which Jordan Poole is actually really well equipped to puncture the gaps in that defense to be that second side attacker who is really making Dallas pay if they want to if they want to blitz Steph, for instance. And, you know, whether it's Draymond making a play out of the four on three, you know, as a, a lob passer, as a short roll scorer, you know, with the with the floaters that he can occasionally hit if he's showing some measure of aggression with the ball in his hands. But more than any of that, I think it's just like if the ball gets swung to the second side and Jordan Poole is there, that's kind of like the ace up Golden State's sleeve, but they got to protect him on defense. And they didn't really do a very good job of that against Memphis. And, you know, if they couldn't, if they couldn't protect him against John Morant, I don't know. I mean, it's different, right? Because John Morant has like the straight line speed that Luca doesn't have, where like I feel Poole a lot of times is just getting blown by. And maybe with Luca, who's like a little bit more probing, but obviously a lot more physical and strong. Um, I don't know. Does that... Does that make it easier for Poole? Does that make it harder? Uh, one way or another, I think he's going to force some really tough decisions on that Golden State defense, put them in rotation, and they're just going to have to be on point, airtight, um, because we've seen what these Dallas complementary players can do. Like all season, we're talking about this team, like they they built it in such a way that they put all these shooters around Luka and none of them are hitting their threes. And now all of them are hitting their threes. You know, yeah, like yeah. Bullock's at like 39%. Kleba's at 49%. Dinwiddie's at 40%. Um, I mean, like it's it's all kind of like come in this avalanche at the right time. And 
So now, like, yeah, Golden State really has to think about how much help do we want to send? How survivable is that on the backside? I think it'll also be interesting to see how much the Warriors target Luka on the other end. Like, as much as he's going to be picking on Jordan Poole and Steph Curry, we've seen, especially early in that Phoenix series, teams target Luka on the other end, right? Like, sometimes the Mavs' downfall is that everything runs through Luka on the offensive end and everything runs at Luka on the defensive end. And I think the Warriors are obviously quite capable of doing that. Now, maybe not to the same extent they tried to do it to Jokic in the Denver series. And I also think it's just a little different too when it's a big man that you're trying to involve on those actions as, as opposed to when it's a wing. But I do think they can target Luka. The reason I like the Warriors in this series in the end is that I think the Mavs going small and going five out, I think made obviously Utah and then Phoenix with Aiton, you know, with Gobert and Aiton, uncomfortable in ways that I we know that's not like going small is not making the Warriors uncomfortable. Their best lineup is small. Maybe the best lineup in the NBA is the Warriors small ball lineup. Now, Von Looney's been great for them and was great um, in the series against Memphis, but their best lineup is still their small lineup. So Dallas isn't making them uncomfortable there. And the other thing too is like this awesome Dallas defense that has done a phenomenal job of taking the rim away from teams all season. Again, that hurt Utah, but it, it hurt Phoenix more. And the thing is, I don't think it's going to hurt the Warriors as much because, okay, if you look at the Suns and the Warriors and their shot profiles, both of them were bottom four in getting to the rim anyway. But the difference is that the Suns were also near the bottom in three-point frequency, right? We know how that offense subsisted, like on the two-point and mid-range. And they were able to do it because Chris Paul and Devin Booker are that good. But I also think... You're, I don't care how good you are in those areas of the floor. Like You're always going to be a little more susceptible, I think, to being uncomfortable, going cold when you're relying on those shots. And I think the Warriors, being a rim-averse team, that is also a good shooting three-point team that does have the goods behind the arc. Hmm. I just feel like they're going to be a lot more comfortable getting into their offense than Phoenix was against Dallas. And I do think that will kind of over the course of a long series play out and, and like I said I just I think they'll be much more comfortable in their offense than Utah and Fe- especially Phoenix was trying to get into their offense against this Dallas defense I don't really see Golden State as a rim averse team actually I think that they do a really good job of leveraging the threat of their three-point shooting into all those back cuts and slips and you know all these different actions that we see to kind of like turn defenses inside out and get guys going toward the rim after pulling you know defenders out to the perimeter and I thought they did a wonderful job of that against Memphis like they uh, until the latter stages of that series like through the first four games I want to say demolished the Grizzlies at the rim in terms of like frequency and effectiveness of scoring inside which is not what we expected but it happened because Memphis kind of sold out to take away the three-point line and that's what I'm really curious about because that to me is what Dallas has done the best job of And I know it's, you know, maybe you don't think about that uh, against Phoenix because they sort of don't really shoot a ton of threes anyway. But you talked about it after the first round about what an amazing job they did of limiting Utah's three-point attempts. And that's a team that led the entire league in three-point frequency during the regular season. So are they going to do that against Golden State? And are they going to be able to take away the three-point line against Golden State to the same extent without getting burned by all those things that Golden State can do, leveraging that three-point threat to get like that really juicy stuff at the rim. Um, so th- I'm, I'm curious about that. And the other thing I'm really curious about is like, okay, 
we know the Warriors are going to turn the ball over a lot. And it almost doesn't even matter whether they're playing like a pressure defense. They just commit a ton of unforced errors. And in some ways, that's just a product of the offensive system that they run with so much movement and, and passing. And like, you know, it's empowering, I guess, a lot of guys to make passes and make plays. And they sometimes make some reckless ones. Um, but regardless, like they're going to turn the ball over a lot. And I just wonder if Dallas, you know, Dallas is basically like the slowest paced team in the league. Can they make Golden State actually pay for that and transition to the same extent that Memphis did, for example? Because in the regular season, only one team, uh, and that was Miami, ran less frequently off of steals. And no team was less efficient scoring off of live ball turnovers during the regular season. And I think in the playoffs so far, only the Bulls have been worse uh, or less efficient scoring off of live ball turnovers. So that's like, yeah, the Warriors are going to turn it over a lot, but maybe Dallas isn't the team that's best equipped to take advantage. At the same time, like the Mavs, because they run this very heliocentric offense with Luka at the center of everything and not a ton of ball movement, they're a really low turnover team. And so if they can just avoid getting killed on their own glass, which I think they should be able to because they've been one of the best defensive rebounding teams in the league all year, if they can do that, then they should be able to win the possession battle pretty handily. And that, as we've seen over the course of the season, could be really important. Which way are you leaning? Man, I am like caught right in the middle of Mavs and six or Warriors and seven. And I think I am leaning ever so slightly in the direction of Mavs and six. But like, wow, I think it's going to be one of those two that like Mavs and six or Warriors and seven. And uh, I haven't like fully come down on one side or the other, but like, you know, gun to my head our favorite exercise i think i'm going Mavs and six holy shit i'm going warriors and six yeah again credit to luka Doncic. just you know the, the role players stepping up the defensive uh transformation under jason kidd this team somehow is here and uh you know if if your prognostication is correct we'll be four wins away from a championship in a couple of weeks. Unbelievable. Yeah. Sean, um, Sean Sweeney should probably have a head coaching job in the league next season, do, right? So do you remember earlier in the year we were talking, I and I was saying, I brought up the fact that like when uh, Sean Sweeney's name first started kind of coming up as Jason Kidd's assistant way back when, I don't remember if it was in Brooklyn or his first trip in Milwaukee now, but anyway, at the time, he was seen in league circles as this like young defensive savant. Yeah, yeah it, was, who did, it was with Kidd in Milwaukee, I'm pretty sure. Right, who did have a future as like the, a next great NBA head coach who was just this defensive genius. And I don't know if, I'm not sure if the shine came off that a bit because of the way the Bucks defense regressed in the end under Kidd and Sweeney. I don't know. But yes, I definitely think given what's happened in Dallas, Obviously, yes, Kid deserves some of that credit too, but like Sweeney is the, essentially their defensive coordinator. And given the reputation he already once had, plus what's gone on in Dallas this year, you'd have to think that he will be an NBA head coach sooner rather than later. Yeah. All right. Should I get to some fan shout outs? Yeah, please do. First, I just want to mention uh, all the people that came up to me last night at Super Fresh in Toronto. I was there for friends of the show. Uh, Will Liu and Alex Wong's event for the Asian Gold Ribbon Campaign, which is a platform developed uh, to fight against anti-Asian hate and racism. There are honestly too many names to even remember, but uh, shout out to everyone that came up to me at that event and and saying they like what we do here at Pound the Rock and the content we create at The Score in general. Shout out to 
username the old Kanye on the score app who commented on our last podcast that they are loving all of the analogies in the podcast find them hilarious tries to find scenarios in their life to use them but still has no idea what a fugazi is so the old Kanye uh, again if you want to reach out via social media and let us know uh, who exactly you are and how long you've been listening and where you listen from and all that. We'll get you a more proper shout out. But uh, I do, I did notice that and flag that and wanted to mention that at the end of one of our upcoming shows. And uh, for the old Kanye and for anyone who actually doesn't know, Fugazi is the Italian word for fraud or fake that kind of became more in the lexicon of non-Italians after the Johnny Depp movie based on the true story, uh, Donnie Brasco of an FBI agent that infiltrated one of the five mafia families in New York. Anyway, there's a famous scene with Johnny Depp and Al Pacino talking about a diamond that Al Pacino was trying to sell and Johnny Depp tells him it's a fugazi. And uh, anyway, that's, that's the backstory behind it. It just means fraud or fake in Italian. And I love using it when talking about teams, players, executives, whatever that I believe are fugazis. So there's that. Usual call out uh, for any of our listeners that have not received a shout out over the last couple years. Please reach out Twitter at Joey underscore double Y-O-U at Joseph Cacharo. Email joe.wolfond at thescore.com. Joseph.Cacharo at thescore.com. Find me on Instagram, Joe underscore 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 cash. And let us know how long you've been listening, where you're listening from, what you like about the show, maybe what you don't. And we promise we will get you a shout out on a future episode. Until one of those future episodes, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the rock. Pound the rock.